This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. We're going to be reading Genesis 6, 1 through 8. When man, excuse me, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what's the biggest problem that you face in your world? I want you to think about it for a second. I think the answers we can give probably are things like, well, the, the state of the economy, that's the biggest problem I face in my world. Uh, I hate to remind you that back in 2020, gas prices were at $2.17 a gallon. Uh-huh. And you can say, yeah, that's it for sure, man, the economy. Everything's getting more expensive. Everything costs more money. That's the biggest problem I face. Or maybe you would say, no, 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 it's the government that brought this about. That's the biggest problem we face. It's liberal government that's in place right now. That's it. Well, okay. Or maybe you see it closer into you. Maybe you would say, no, it's my job. And I really hate my job. My job right now is the biggest problem that I face. Or maybe even could be, no, it's my family. My family causes so many difficulties. If you knew my family, my spouse, my kids, whatever, those are the biggest problems that I face. And as bad as those problems are, I really don't think that those are truly the biggest problems that we face. You see, I think it's very much within us all to look outside of ourselves to identify the problems we face. But the reality is the biggest problem you face is not outside of you. In fact, it is you. Your sin is the biggest problem you face. Think about it this way. Is it the government or is it how we react to the government? Is it the economy or is it how we're living and reacting and feeling ourselves within the economy? Well, pastor, things are getting really hard and they don't look they're getting any better and just it makes the guy worried. It makes the guy stressed out. Isn't it okay to be a little stressed out and worried? Well, what do you do when the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything? And what do you do when the Bible says 365 times, do not fear? Well, if you knew the family that I had and the challenges they bring, right, but you react to them. 
And you respond to them, and how often are you stopping and thinking about, is this response, is this phrase I'm saying, are these words I'm using, are they honoring to God? Or something else besides God captured my heart in the moment, and no matter what's happening around me, my reflection of that is not godly. It's a problem. Because sin brings devastation. As I'm looking at the text that we read today, isn't that the story of the text? Sin left unchecked goes to dark places and it brings devastation. I don't know if you noticed or not, but a few weeks ago, we actually started kind of a new little mini-series in Genesis. So the first focus that we were in, we called it the foundation of theology as we looked at creation and we contemplated some of those things on a theological level. But a couple weeks ago, we kind of switched to the foundation of depravity as we talked about Cain and Abel and last week about Lamech and how things have gotten and now continuing this week. It's just... It's a difficult time, and I have to warn you, we're going to be in this whole topic of depravity for a while, because once we get to the Tower of Babel, then we're going to switch over to Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, and guess what Romans 1, 2, and 3 talks about? Depravity. So, but this morning especially, I need to lean in a little bit, because we have a tendency to look outside of ourselves to blame everything else, to downplay and to excuse. And so the big idea that I'm after this morning is this, I will take my sin seriously. I will take my sin seriously. I'm gonna cover three truths to help us see that clearly this morning. And here's truth number one. I want you to think about for a minute the mess that sin makes, the mess that sin makes. And I want you to, to see... First of all, it's the width of sin, how far and wide the sin goes. And so you may have noticed we didn't do one whole sermon in Genesis chapter 5. It's a genealogy that talks about so-and-so and give birth to so-and-so and on and on. Now, last week, we wanted to spend some time telling you why genealogies are important, so we talked about that for a focus. And this week, I want to point out that the genealogy in chapter 5 is really leading to where we end in 6.1. So look at 6.1 again together. Just going to read this one verse and check this out when man began multiplying on the face of the land and daughters were born to them so the man is beginning to multiply and so just imagine man multiplying and spreading out and when when men multiply what else multiplies Sin multiplies, and now you have this thing, this concept, this enemy that we face called the world. When the Bible talks about the world, there's several different ways it talks about it. One is like the ball of mud, the planet that we're on right now, that's the world. Uh, there's also the uh, collective mankind, for God so loved the world. But the Bible also talks about the world as this system ruled by Satan, this culture, this world that we live in. And the Bible is clear. This, as men spreads out, men do what men do and they sin. And the systems and the things that they build, the cultures they build often are sinful cultures. And Christians are told very clearly this in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, 
the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, check this now, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now I say all of this to say, Christians kind of want to dwell in the world. And we kind of want to rob from the world and make our own kind of things that are like the world. And listen, man, whenever Christians try to emulate or be like the world, they don't do a good job at it. Case in point. All right, we're about to have some spiritual milk. To the left. Take a step of faith. Pray once this time. Oh, boy. On the devil, let's stomp. On temptation, let's stomp. Bible slide, real smooth. Now praise and shout. Yeah, what you're, what you're, what you're witnessing is a clear example of the depravity of man and sin. And it's the cha-cha slide, but the Bible version. And they're going to have them some spiritual milk, I guess. But listen, we want to live in the world. We want to emulate the world in an attempt to win the world. And I'm telling you, we don't win the world by being like the world. We win the world by being like Jesus, by loving them like Christ and being different from the world. But it's hard. It's hard because it's all around us. It's the culture that's around us. It's the air that we breathe in, and we love acceptance. We have to admit it. We hate rejection. And so what we do is we just kind of go along, go with the flow, and before you know it, church, listen, you may be involved in all kinds of sin and pass it off as normal. All to be accepted by a people who Jesus himself promised would never accept us. Here's John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so I just got to look at you and ask, where are you in all of this? How much do you just go along with the flow of the world? Other times when you stand and say, that's not okay. I can't be a part of this. What will it take for you to shut a show down? I'm not watching this anymore. To turn a song off. We've become numb to some degree. And I'm wondering if we don't need a reminder that we're not to be like the world. Thinking about the width of sin, I want you to also think about the breadth of sin, the breadth of sin. Now, to show you this, I had to step into a highly debated passage of Scripture. And so let's dive into chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, and um, uh, I'll read it, and then we'll come back and explain it to you a little bit. So it says this, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and that they took as their wives any they chose. And then, of course, God punishes them because of that. Verse number three, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. 
his days shall be like 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterwards, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So then the question is, okay, who are we talking about here? Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? And what the heck are Nephilim? Well, it's not this, okay? This was Hollywood's version a few years ago with the Noah movie, Rock Giants. Okay, not that. Everyone say, not that. Okay, so what are we talking about? Well, there are three uh, main interpretations of this text. So let's walk through them each, and I have to say, as I was studying out God's word this week, uh, I, I changed. I, I held to one interpretation, I have now moved to another interpretation, and I'll explain why as we dive in. So one interpretation says that these are the sons of God, are uh, fallen angels, so you probably know that when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him from heaven. And so there's a third, a massive number of fallen angels that are now here on this earth. We call them demons. And uh, so the one interpretation says, well, these are demons that have been cohabitated with women and they possessed men probably to have the Nephilim, the children from them. And so that's one interpretation. Uh, another interpretation is uh, what's called the royal interpretation. And uh, there are times in ancient Greek literature that kings are called sons of God. And so about the second century, Jewish interpreters began to say, well, maybe that's what this is here. They are kings, and they are then taking regular women, normal women, and they're making a harem, and that's the sin that's going. The sin is instead of a king building a harem. Maybe that's the sin happening here. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation is called the Sethite interpretation, and that's the idea of this. Remember how we left off in Genesis chapter 4, and it talked about the line of Seth, and how we saw this was a line that led all the way to Christ, and so you have this holy, godly line, these sons of God, and, and but they begin to marry into normal, regular women. The daughters of Cain is the idea, Cainite women with Sethite men, and that's what's really going on here. And again, as I studied them out, really, uh, I, I would have hold previously to that middle one, the royal interpretation. But where I'm at now in my study is I'm, 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 I'm shocked to say that I'm kind of more leaning toward the fallen angels interpretation. This is probably demons that have either uh, possessed men or somehow, some way cohabitated with women. And let me tell you why I landed there. And I think it just comes to uh, interpretation of God's word. Uh, because both the, the latter two, by the way, are much newer. The earliest Jewish exegetes held to the fallen angel's view. So that's the earliest view that you saw. And it wasn't until the second century uh, that really um, the royal interpretation view came in. But really the key thing that, that swung me over is this. Uh, how does God's word use that phrase, sons of God? Right, and let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. So how does God's word use that? And you see it used in, in scripture a couple of ways. Here's Job 1.6. Uh, actually, just one way. You only see it used one way, and it's talking about angels. Uh, now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. So these are obviously angels that came to present themselves before God, and they're called here the sons of God. Later on in Job, we see this about the day of creation. It says this, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So you see them being referred to as angels here. So we have these angels that are being talked about and identified as sons of God, the same phrase used in Genesis chapter six. 
Now the problem, the pushback against that, is, well, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty that that angels cannot marry nor are they given in marriage. So it doesn't this mean that it can't be them? Well, MacArthur says this about that. Uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty does not necessarily negate the possibility that angels are capable of procreation, but just that they do not marry. To procreate physically, they had to possess human male bodies. So all that to say, uh, probably uh, uh, this is what we're talking about here. Uh, and then you put on top of that some other verses later on in the, Old, uh, the New Testament that allude to angels uh, creating or, or angels participating in grievous sin around the time of the flood. So here is 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. It says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, you have this story about angels falling into some specific sin about the time of the flood, and you see it again in Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own possession of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So adding all of that up, that's kind of where I move. But all of that to say, look, regardless of your interpretation, by the way, I'll say this, uh, um, uh, I would not die on that hill. And I think it's important to note again this morning that there are levels of doctrine to which we hold with various levels of intensity. That's not one I would hold intense, okay? It's just my interpretation of this text that's kind of moved. It's a, what I would call a secondary doctrine. We have essentials. These things are not to be denied. Jesus Christ is the son of God. I'm gonna wait for the amen of that one. All right, all right, all right. He died on the cross for our sins and rose again. He's coming again. This is God's word, infallible and perfect. Okay, those are things I hold to essentially. There are things that are primary doctrines. This would be a secondary doctrine. You know, so it's okay to have various views on some of these things. But all that to say, this reveals, what I believe is the interpretation, angels cohabitating with women reveals the darkness of sin. It brought God's judgment. Take a look at verse number three again in Genesis 6. It says this, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. I think it's interesting, by the way, that God does, even though it sounds like these uh, sons of God were just taking the women, there is some sin involved, potentially in the willingness of the women and their fathers of the daughters, giving them to marry outside of natural bounds. Wherever the case, God says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. And so you see this punishment occurring. And then, of course, you see what really happens in verse number seven when it gets really bad. But the point is this, sin is dark. Sin is dark. And sin takes man to dark places. That's for sure true. My youth pastor would say as I was growing up, sin always takes you where you don't want to go it keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. And you look at sin in this world, and you, and you think, how, how is child pornography a thing? Well, uh, medically speaking, uh, 
people who are addicted to pornography, that initial rush that it gave when they began looking at just normal porn, didn't do it anymore, so it got darker, it got darker, it got darker, and it gets to very dark places. How is human trafficking a thing? And, and there is just gross gore on the deep, dark places of the internet that I've been told about that you just don't even want to think about. And sin is dark. But again, we don't just want to talk about the width of sin and the breadth of sin. We have to contemplate the depth of sin and the depth of our own sin. It's one thing to look outside of ourselves, but the text says this in verse number five. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look, the problem isn't outside of you. The problem is inside of you. You don't sin because of the circumstances you're in. We sin because we have dark hearts. And the Bible reveals our heart is what leads us into sin. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our sin has caused darkness. Our sin has gone to places where we don't ever want to go. And that has caused damage. It has made a mess. What relationships in your life have been affected because of sin? What has it had on your own life? What pain and heartache has your sin caused because of the dark desires you have? We don't want to think about it. We want to excuse it. We want to call it something else. We want to blame it on somebody else. But church, we got to own it. Sin is messy, but then also this, the mess that sin makes also the pain that sin causes, the pain that sin causes. And primarily, I want to talk about this. Sin grieves God's heart. We have a, a, another tough verse to interpret here when you look at verse number six. So we saw verse number five and that God looks and he sees the wickedness. But then you got this tough verse in verse number six. Let's walk through it together. It says, then the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So what's the idea of God regretting? That, like, that's an odd idea. Like God regrets something? How can God regret something that he did? Wouldn't that mean that then he didn't think what he did was right or kind of what is going on here? Some interpretations actually say God repented of, of this. And so repent, God can't repent, he cannot sin. And no, it's right, God cannot sin, he does not sin. But I think it helps to consider some uh, Hebrew commentaries. And this is Jameson Fawcett Brown, an excellent Hebrew commentary, which says this to us to help us understand this. God cannot change, and he lists some verses there to back that up. Now listen, but by language suited to our nature and experience, he is described as about to alter his visible procedure toward mankind from being merciful and long-suffering. 
He was about to show himself a God of judgment. And as that impious race has filled up the measure of their iniquities, he was about to introduce a terrible display of his justice. The idea here is not that God changed, but from our perspective, it's language suited to our nature and experience. And and Moses is using human expressions to describe something he wants us to understand. God is greatly grieved by our sin. Can I say it again? God is greatly grieved by our sin. We see it in the New Testament. Here's Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Look, I think when I put up here, let's talk about the pain of sin. Our first thought goes to, well, the pain sin causes me. Or maybe the pain sin causes my loved ones. Church, how about the pain sin causes our God? Do you know this? Your sin brings separation between you and God. This is Isaiah 59, verse number two. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is really important, church. How much does your love relationship with God factor into your repentance? It's a really important point. How much does your love relationship with God factor into your repentance of sin. It it did with David. This is Psalm 51. Remember he sinned against really his nation and against his God, but when he took Bathsheba and he slept with her and she got pregnant, then he killed her husband and then Nathan comes and says, "You you are the man and he repents and this is his psalm of repentance, but look at what he says here. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Well, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Against you and you only? Are you kidding me, David? Like, you sinned against Bathsheba for sure. You sinned against Uriah. You had to do killed. You sinned against your whole nation but not going off to war when kings were supposed to go off to war. There's a lot of people you sinned against, but David's point is that the thing that grieved his heart the most is he sinned against his God. Against you, you only, you primarily have I sinned. Church, listen, I think one of the biggest reasons that we don't repent like we should is because we don't walk with God like we should. That you live every day, day in and day out, without talking to him, without hearing from him, without loving him and being loved by him, that we get caught up in just the rat race of every day and we just don't remember that we have a God who loves us that we can walk with and you feel guilty because you didn't get in your devotions and you didn't do this, but just that love relationship And even when we repent, often our repentance is lackluster, it's ineffective. 
You ever done that? You ever like, I'm gonna repent of this, I'm gonna stop this, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, only to go right back into it again? What's happening with that? Well, I, I think this. I think that we often have, listen to me now, the wrong heart foundation behind our repentance, and it becomes not godly grief or godly sorrow, but it becomes worldly sorrow. And let me help you understand this. This is um, from Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which says this. He can, compares these two things. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, so they were sending, he wrote a letter, they repented. He said this, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. For though I did regret it, for I see that it, the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance, at least to salvation, without regret. Whereas worldly, this world worldly is coming up a lot, whereas worldly grief produces death. For I see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourself innocent in the matter. It's so important to see this. Why are you grieved about your sin? Do you know it could be for a lot of wrong reasons that have nothing to do with your love relationship with God himself? And if your repentance is ineffective, maybe it has the wrong heart foundation. Maybe it's not about relationship. So I'll give you this illustration. I, um, um, when I graduated high school, I had a vision for my life, and that vision was I was going to be a, a music teacher, a choir director. I love singing. I love music, and I was going to do that for a living. And uh, so I was running hard after that, and I even had a full-ride scholarship to Washington State University for vocal music. But what happened was I never took a foreign language, so they did not accept my application. And I was like, oh, no, now what am I going to do? And I was kind of mad at God about that. I was already running from God. I knew I was called to ministry, but I was fighting all of that. So I went down to Kentucky because my parents moved back to Kentucky. So I went down to Kentucky to kind of live in that whole environment and got caught up with my cousins who were kind of running on the wild side a little bit. And I began to smoke uh, cigarettes and, and realized I really enjoyed smoking. And then uh, one day, my dad didn't know, but one day I was at my uh, uncle's house and I was leaned up against, you know, the heater, and uh, I had a cigarette, and just imagine it. Oh, I should have brought one in and smoked it so you can really see the picture here. Um, but I was smoking a cigarette, kind of smoking a cigarette like that, and my dad walks in, and he sees me. And his face just drops. He says, boy, what's that in your finger? He's from Kentucky. Boy, what's that in your finger? He said, it's a cigarette. He said, well, I just... I just can't believe it. I just never thought I'd see you smoking. And it just, I just remember the feeling right now that just crushed me. And he left, and I was so convicted. I went running up alongside his car and knocked on him, and, and I gave him the cigarettes because he smoked, but I gave him the cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, 
because of the, it, was, it, was, it was, wasn't because I was convinced that my health was not gonna be in a good place if I smoked these things for a long time. It was that it, it, it put distance between my dad and I, and my dad and I have always been very close. But that love relationship was hindered. And what's at the foundation of your repentance? Is it a love relationship with God or is it a love relationship with yourself? Think about worldly sorrow. I said, worldly, worldly, worldly. It came up all the time. Do you remember what is of the world? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the sinful pride of life. Those are worldly values. And think about how often our repentance is really based on worldly values. I hate that people know about my sin. I hate that my sin will bring uncomfortable circumstances. I'm sad that I might actually have to give up something I really enjoy. That's worldly sorrow based on a love for self. But godly sorrow is based on a love for God. I hate what this has done to my relationship with God. I hate that this sin has grieved my Jesus' heart. I hate that I hurt God. Church, I believe, I think the biggest reason we don't repent like we should is because we don't walk with God like we should. What I want for you, more than anything, is for you to put on a daily love relationship with Jesus. So that the first thing you see is not other people's sin. The first thing that grieves you is not the bad circumstances sin may bring about, but your relationship is hurt. Sin grieves God's heart. And then quickly on this one, sin brings God's judgment. Sin brings God's judgment. Uh, we saw it with the uh, um, sons of God, daughters of men in verse number three. Then the Lord uh, said, my spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So God shortens the lifetime of men. Look back in chapter five and you'll see how long these dudes lived. It was a long time. Now, it, it, it doesn't stop immediately. Noah still lives 950 years, which is awesome to think about. Um, but then on top of that, you, you see it happening, but it, it begins to shrink from there. By the time you get to Moses, uh, these guys are living in their 120s. In fact, Aaron is the longest lived guy of all of that. He lives 123 years, so it, 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 it uh, uh, wanes off as time goes on. But you see the judgment there. You'll also see the judgment in verse number seven. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things. I mean, this is severe judgment. A worldwide flood is coming. Why? Because of sin. Now, we're going to talk more about the wrath of God next week. The entire sermon is going to be about the wrath of God. But what I want us to see is how serious sin is before a holy God. I was tired. Well, if you wouldn't have done what you did, I wouldn't have done what I did. 
I wasn't as strong as I should have been. Everyone struggles with this. No, it's just my personality. I slipped a little. Whatever it takes to alleviate some of the pain of our failure, our excuses are never ending. Today, I want you just to think on your own life and your own heart. Where, where, where are you with your sin? Church, are you still, are there sins that you're still hiding? What sins are you still excusing? It's time to repent. Really repent because we love God. Which brings us to this, the sin that mess, the mess that sin makes, the pain that sin causes, but also now we have this, the grace God shows. And I want your eyes to fall on verse number eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Is that like cool water on a parched throat to you? Is that like a cool breeze on a hot day? Is that like, you know, like when the ibuprofen finally kicks in? You know what I mean? It's kind of like, ah, there it is. Because what you have in the midst of the horrificness of sin is you have a God of grace. But Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And what's awesome is right from the very, very beginning, you always see God's grace, at least a thread of God's grace in all of these stories. I want you to think about the garden for a minute, right? So Adam and Eve really blew it in the garden and they were ashamed of their nakedness. But did God have them leave the garden naked? No, he didn't. He sacrificed an animal and clothed their nakedness. That's his grace. How about with Cain? Cain said, this punishment is too great for me to bear. Men are gonna kill me when they see me. And God said, no, 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 I'm gonna put a mark on you to preserve your life. What is that? That is that's grace. And even here, as the wickedness is so great that every thought of their heart was evil continually, Noah finds grace. It's all throughout the Bible. In fact, do this. Take your Bible and go to Psalm 136, if you would, please. Psalm 136. In Psalm 136, we're gonna see a phrase that is repeated over and over again in the word of God. And uh, I want you to see this phrase. Uh, it's uh, beautiful in its meaning, and it's gonna uh, show you exactly what I'm talking to you about this morning. Now, as we read this, we're gonna do a little responsive reading. 
I'm going to read the first part, and you'll see the phrase that repeats over and over again, for a steadfast love endures forever. I want you to read that part. So I'm going to read the first part, and then you read that part uh, for me, for a steadfast love endures forever. We'll start verse number one. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast to him who alone does great wonders, for a steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for a steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for a steadfast love endures forever. We can keep reading all of that. You get to verse number 10. He moves ahead to Egypt. And take a look at this. Uh, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for a steadfast love endures forever. Who brought uh, the Israel out from among them. For a steadfast love endures forever. And we can go on and on and on and on. And God is trying to tell us that throughout the history of his people, one thing he wants you to know, one thing he wants you to believe. Church, what is it? His steadfast love endures forever. This is our God. Now, be honest. Does his grace feel like a cold drink on a parched throat? Does it feel like a cool breeze on a hot summer day to you? Or is it like, eh, Maybe it doesn't feel that way because you have pushed down the seriousness of your sin too much. When we rob ourselves of owning our sin, we rob ourselves of the amazing truth of God's grace. And I will tell you from experience the victory over sin comes when we are amazed that God would forgive a sinner like me because that draws my heart in to love him more. Maybe the thing your relationship with God needs more than anything else is for you to say, God, forgive me, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. And to feel his grace that draws your heart to him in a closer love relationship and let that drive everything else in your life because that's what it means to be living in the gospel. So let me just take a minute. Let me just pray for us all. Lord, to say that we're thankful for grace this morning is just not even close to what our hearts feel. I know my sin. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst I know. Will you forgive me? It just is mind-blowing that you would, but you do. I've preached the gospel and then I've sinned against the gospel. I hate that. I hate my sin. 
but you forgive. And you love. And tomorrow morning when I wake up, I can get alone with you and talk to you and you're going to meet me. We're going to spend time together in your word. I'm going to pour my heart out. You're going to have verses that I need to hear. It's going to be a sweet time. I don't deserve that, but you're going to be there every morning, every day, all throughout the day. You are my God and you love me. And I want to love you deeper and stronger and better. And I want to hate my sin more. And I would pray that you would do that work in my heart. Do that for all of us. And we're going to give you the glory for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.